Well, good morning. I am Rob Boo. I'm the senior pastor here at Wheaton Bible Church, and I will be down in front, uh, right in here following the service, and I would love to meet you, especially if you're visiting with us today. Now, because it's Labor Day weekend, and in light of this series that we are kicking off, I want to invite you to kick off your fall by renewing your commitment to Jesus Christ. I want to invite you as we begin September to re-up, to resubscribe, to recalibrate, to realign to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ. And so to that end, over the next six weeks, we are going to look at one of the greatest moments of spiritual renewal and restoration in Israel's history by looking at one layman and his huge role in this restoration. His name is Nehemiah, and he wasn't a prophet, he wasn't a priest, he wasn't a religious worker of any sorts in terms of a full-time basis. Rather, Nehemiah was a layman. Actually, he was a Jewish exile, a foreigner who had risen through the ranks and had become a leading government official in the pagan superpower of Persia. Yeah, what's so fascinating about Nehemiah is that in spite of the pressures of his job, in spite of the busyness of his life, in spite of the hostile spiritual culture around him that could have easily overwhelmed him, Nehemiah stayed a deeply godly man, pursuing God with everything in him. And his greatest passion next to his relationship with God was that Nehemiah lived and breathed to see the restoration of his homeland, Israel, and in particular, Jerusalem. And in the goodness and the providence of God, that's, what ex that's exactly what happened uh, with Nehemiah. And it took place at the end of Old Testament history. So if you haven't, turn in your Bibles. There's Bibles in the racks in front of you. Or turn on your Bibles. If you'll notice that Nehemiah occurs in the middle of the Bible. In the middle of the Old Testament, I should say. Almost exactly in the middle of the Old Testament. Yet the reality is chronologically it occurs, this story occurs at the end of the Old Testament, even after the book of Malachi. These events take place in the mid-400s B.C. And what God does is just incredible. And boy, does he use Nehemiah. So over these next six Sundays, we're going to look at six different components that feed into this restoration, this renewal. And we're going to take them one at a time. And the reason we're doing this is to help you experience the spiritual restoration and power that you long for as a follower of Jesus Christ. 
We want to help you go deeper. We want to help you prepare for this fall. So we're going to get started in Nehemiah chapter 1. And follow with me as I read these first couple of paragraphs, beginning in verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hekeliah, in the month of Kislev, now that Jewish month is uh, equivalent to our November, December, in the 20th year while I was in the citadel, that is the fortress or the palace of Susa, now Susa was the capital of Persia. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Uh, Now, Susa is about 700 miles east, a long distance in that day from Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, and they are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned, notice, for some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Now would that the church of Jesus Christ, would that we as Christians would be that concerned about the things going on around us. Uh, the gates that are burned, the walls that are broken, so to speak. But I want you to understand, Nehemiah is so distressed because he knew Jerusalem wasn't just any city. It wasn't merely the former political center of Israel. Uh, Jerusalem was designed to be the spiritual center of the entire world. It was the one city where God would dwell, his name would dwell, at least in part in the temple. So if Israel was to be defenseless, the Jews could lose their ethnic and spiritual identity, they could be assimilated into cultures. And if the Jewish people went away, then there would be no people uh, that could bring forth the Messiah. Now let me shift and just describe Nehemiah for a moment. It helps if you understand that Nehemiah is a hard-charging type A. This is a guy that's decisive. If you're into the Enneagram scale, Nehemiah is an eight. He's a challenger. He's, he's a commander in, in the best sort of way. And I say that because I want you to understand the very first thing Nehemiah does is he sits down and he prays for five months. We get that from the first verses of chapter 1 and chapter 2 where the months are mentioned. And he prays, and we'll see in a moment, he he doesn't just pray casually, he's praying day and night, month after month. And so what we want to do is, today we want to go to school on Nehemiah's prayer. Because renewal begins with prayer. Renewal, your renewal begins with your prayer. The renewal around you begins as you and I pray. So let's pick it up in verse 5. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant to love 
of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer that your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. That's Jerusalem. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. So give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And I was the cupbearer to the king. Now, a cupbearer in the ancient Near Eastern world was uh, part bodyguard. He tasted the wine, so he was highly trusted. But he was also part government advisor, advisor to the king. And in many cases, history tells us these cupbearers maintained cabinet-level positions. They were big deals. So what is prayer? How would you answer that question? Prayer is having a conversation with God, isn't it? Prayer is talking to God. But I want to suggest to you, restorative prayer is trading hearts with God. You exchanging your heart for God's heart. And that's exactly what we see going on here with Nehemiah. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, ask and it will be given, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened. So why should you and I as believers pray? Why should we talk to God? Why should we trade hearts with God? Because number one, Jesus commands it, and we see it all over the Bible like we see it here. It's what the people of God do. Faith prays like sparks fly upward. And number two, because Jesus promises to answer our prayer. Ask and it shall be given. This is actually one of the values of Wheaton Bible Church because we are committed to to prayer. This is why we're having this corporate prayer event, church-wide prayer event, this Wednesday night at 7 as we move into the fall. I want to encourage you to come because as we stated in our value, there is a power in prayer. And I say that because in your dark moments, in your difficult moments, I want you to remember that. There is a power, there is a power in prayer. Don't stop praying. Now what we see in this prayer that begins in verse five are three pieces or three parts to this prayer. 
And I want to state them also in terms of three tests. So you can evaluate your progress in prayer. Because, and I want you to hear me in this, prayer is never a destination. It's always a journey. A journey with Jesus. So let's begin with the first piece. It's found in verses 5 and 6. You adore God. You worship God. And so here's the test. When you pray, do you begin your prayers with God or with yourself? What's your focus? Nehemiah begins by gazing with God. Let me show you this. Let's go back to verse 5. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and the awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Here, Nehemiah adores God by expressing, by talking to God about four of his attributes. He begins, Lord, the God of heaven, which is a, a, a statement, God... You are the universal king. Uh, This is a statement of God's universal supremacy, the one true God over everything. Now, never mind that Nehemiah is in a spiritually hostile culture that functionally denies God all the time. Never mind that Nehemiah is what? Exposed to dirty politics every day? Nehemiah's faith is unfazed. It's a remarkable story. And he begins announcing, declaring, and adoring God because he reigns above all. He is transcendent. Great refers to God's power. Awesome refers to God's holiness. And God's covenant of love refers to God's grace and mercy and compassion and forgiveness and tenderness with those who love him and keep his commandments. Incredible statement of adoration. Incredible way to begin prayer here. Now, I don't know how you begin your prayers, and I do not know what you are facing right now or what you're going to face this fall. But as a pastor, I get a sense. I mean, over the last two weeks, I I, I prayed with people who've lost a parent. I've prayed with uh, people who are facing heart surgery. Prayed with people struggling with cancer. I've been praying for people who are experiencing acute brokenness in their marriage, in their home. And on and on. I don't know what you're going to face this fall, but what I want you to understand is that in spite of the brokenness of Israel, in spite of Nehemiah's deep grief, his sadness, that for many people can become numbing and shut us down, Nehemiah here affirms that everything, everything in his life, in Israel's life, and in the universe is under God's sovereign control. Now, in the same way, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you look around you and you see the broken down walls, the dysfunction, uh, the evil, the sin, 
you may never know why a particular thing has happened or even what it means. But as a believer in Christ, you know what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. Because God cares so much about your sin, about the suffering, your suffering, that Jesus Christ bore all that upon himself as he went to the cross. So we rest in God's sovereignty. We adore God's sovereignty. We adore God's love. And what I want to suggest to you, this is not the way we modern people pray. Because when we pray, we begin with ourselves, our needs, our stuff, our situations, our pain, our frustrations, our hurts. We always we begin with ourselves. Yeah, what is Nehemiah doing here? Nehemiah is beginning vertically, not horizontally. He's addressing God as God. Don't miss this. He is getting his heart God-centered. And I want to suggest to you that is key to prayer that renews our hearts and renews culture around us. You see, when you forget how infinitely great and loving God is, all sorts of distortions begin to creep into your mind. And you begin to doubt or you begin to panic, you begin to fear, you begin to worry, you begin to get discouraged, you begin uh, to uh, uh, get depressed. And it's ironic, there's a great irony here, but it's when you see God is high and holy, you experience way more peace, way more calm, way more joy than when you're trying to work out your own issues in your own strength. So Nehemiah begins by focusing on God. Now let's go to the second aspect of prayer. You admit sin. Here's the test. When you pray, do you confess or do you ignore sin? And sin here is your sin and the sin around you. So let's look at it in terms of Nehemiah's words. Near the end of verse 6, he begins, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very, not just wickedly, but very wickedly toward you, God. We've not obeyed the commands, the decrees, and the laws you gave to your servant Moses. Now, if prayer is having a conversation with God from the heart, you're trading hearts with God. What is confession? I want to suggest to you, confession is taking the garbage out. The moral and spiritual garbage of your heart. What's going on around you? So it's you admitting before God your self-centeredness, your disobedience, Uh, your lust, your anger, your unbelief. It's King David a thousand years before Nehemiah admitting to God his adultery with Bathsheba and then writing it down into Psalms so the entire world would hear his confession. 
saying in Psalm 51, against you, you alone, Lord, I have sinned. David was a man's man, and I want to suggest to you, it takes a strong man, it takes a strong woman, it takes a strong student to confess sin. And where appropriate, to bring others into the loop. But Nehemiah isn't just confessing his own sin, right? He's also confessing the sin of of the broken world around him, in particular Israel and, and Jerusalem, and not to mention what he's rubbing shoulders with every day in Persia. I mean, I want you to think about something for a minute. Do you know that for the first 1,500 years following Christ, unbelief was impossible culturally in the West. The Enlightenment came and things began to change and unbelief became possible. And now here we are today, and I want to suggest to you we have gone to the opposite end of the spectrum because now what, for the last 50 years or so, in the West, belief has become impossible culturally. And shouldn't we cry out to God about the unbelief all around us? God, you see what's going on. God, we're turning away from you. God, I want to confess that. I I want to admit that. I want to admit my part in that. I, I want to confess to you what's going on with late-term abortions. I want to confess to you the addictions that are running rampant in our culture, the alcoholism, the the abuse, the human trafficking, the sex trafficking, the, the injustice, the mistreatment of the poor, the refugee, our indifference. We come as Nehemiah has come before God. And we're not just praying our stuff. We're not just praying our family. And this is what Sergio was saying earlier. Man, we're bringing uh, the sins of the world around us to God. And what happens here is Nehemiah does not make any excuses for Israel's sin. Nor does he detach himself from it? And I find in my prayer life, and I'm sure you're no different, I am way too detached when I pray from the brokenness of the world around me. You see, confession like this isn't natural. You know, it's natural to assume that we're basically good or that we're better, that we're more righteous than other people around us and we keep those people at a a distance. It's uh, natural to blame others. He makes me so angry, time out. Other people do not, hear me, other people do not make you angry. You choose to become angry. Yet it's natural for us to blame others. It's natural for us to blame our circumstances. If you knew how stressed I was, you would understand why I'm reacting like this. It's natural to be indifferent 
to what's going on around us. To not care about the broken walls, uh, the poverty, uh, for example. I have a friend in another state that uh, a few years ago, after years of involvement and prayer, walking alongside with a a large family that, that got clobbered, he stepped in and he bought that family a house. I have other people tell me that one of the highlights of their week is uh, their service in Pointe in our West Chicago ministry among immigrants. I have other people tell me, uh, uh, sharp people, that one of the highlights of their week is uh, their involvement in our children's disciple-making ministry here on Sunday mornings. That is not natural. It's not natural to invest meaningful chunks of our time in the cause of Christ or the needs of the world around us. So today, I want to invite you as I get ready to move on to be a man, a woman that regularly confesses sin. Your sin, the sin of others. I want to invite you in terms of your personal sin to willingly stand spiritually naked before the living God. And you don't hide, you don't pretend, you're open and you're honest. Here I am again, God, I've done this for the 15th time this week. But you can stand spiritually naked before the living God and you can confess and you can keep on confessing and you can confess some more because you know you are completely covered in the blood of Jesus, right? So because you're in Christ, you're not afraid. The throne is a throne of grace. So we approach it with confidence and openness. And because of what Christ has done, you never are afraid of your unrighteousness. Actually, it's your delusion of righteousness Your righteousness, that is your biggest danger. So let's go on. We begin with adoration. We worship. We adore God. We take our eyes off ourselves. We get God-centered. And then we confess, not just our sin, but what's going on around us and what's uh, troubling us. And then we move on. And we ask God. Now this sequence is important, moving from you adore, you admit, to you ask. And why is the sequence important? Because God wants your heart, not just your words. He, 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 He wants your love. He wants your affection. He wants you to love Him with all your heart. And then... We ask. Our problem is we just get this reversed, like I said. So this ask takes place beginning in verse 8 all the way through the end of our chapter, through uh, verse 11. But there's something in Nehemiah's ask I don't want you to miss, and I'm going to show you this in just a second. Nehemiah's ask is profoundly rooted in the Word of God, specifically the Old Testament. And it's profoundly centered on God's redemptive purposes. 
Now, don't misunderstand. I am not saying you shouldn't bring your needs, your situation, your hurts, uh, 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 the details of your life to God. I mean, God loves you. You're a child of the living God. He cares about everything in your life. But what I am saying, be careful that that doesn't become the totality when you ask God, when you bring your request, your petitions to God. So here's the test. Are your requests tied to God's redemptive plans or merely to your personal plans? Look how Nehemiah begins. Remember the instruction you gave Moses. And Nehemiah goes on to quote from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Saying, hey God, you said in Deuteronomy that when your people are in exile and they return to you in their hearts and they seek restoration from their hearts, they seek renewal from your hearts, you promise that you will intervene and you will restore. Nehemiah is using the Old Testament and saying, God, this is what you promised, now do it. He's holding God to God's promises. He's holding God to his word. And he goes on. And in verse 10, he quotes again from the Old Testament. He's citing the book of Exodus and saying, God, just as you redeemed Israel from bondage, bondage in Egypt, so now, God, by that same mighty power, uh, by your same power and strength, your strong hand, do this for Jerusalem and, and restore us. After all, you're the God of great strength. Your hand is mighty. And what's going on here is incredible. And then we come to Nehemiah's specific ask. And he says, God, give me favor. And what's he doing here? He's praying about his boss. Now, we spend a lot of time praying about our bosses, right? You know, God, would you open this guy, this lady's eyes? Would you help him to see how great I am? But that's not how Nehemiah is praying for his boss. He, he's praying, and we'll see this in chapter 2. God, would, would you open his heart so that he would give me permission to leave so I can go back? and lead the charge in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Now I want to ask a question. How, how do we get to praying like this? And I want to suggest a couple of things. First, you learn the Bible. Keep in mind that Nehemiah was a lazy, or lazy, he was a busy layman. A busy layman. Yet he spends his life, apparently, studying the scriptures. So when it comes to this crisis, what is he doing? He's going to the scriptures. He, he, he's quoting the Bible. Now, you aren't going to go to Mariano's following um, 
this service and look for products that are full of sugar, full of preservatives, full of artificial coloring and saturated fat, right? I just assume you're not going to do that because you're not going to feed that to yourself. You're not going to feed that to your family. Yet why do we think so little about feeding our soul and ignore the regular intake of God's Word? I happen to think, personally as a pastor, that one of the reasons for the weaknesses in our churches and the dysfunction and brokenness in our churches is due to the weakness in our lives as believers in Christ because we find God's Word difficult. So instead of doing the, the work required to unpack some of the, the mysteries or the mystifying portions of the Bible, what do we do? We just settle for a diet of processed soul junk food. And we spend our time on culture and watching Netflix. <laughs> now, I am not saying here when I say learn the Bible, go to seminary. And I have nothing against Netflix. But I just want to ask this question. Isn't your soul worth your study of the Bible? Second, pray the Bible. I will tell you, and I'm going to speak candidly here, honestly and transparently, the bulk of my daily prayer time is praying the Bible. You see, immersion in God's Word teaches us to pray. Just as immersion in a parent or parent's language teaches a baby to speak. So I pray different verses in the Old Testament or different verses in the New Testament. I pray the different uh, prayers in the Bible. I pray the Lord's Prayer daily. And I go through it and I talk to God about what he is saying and ask God to open my eyes. Now why do I do this? Because it reorients me away from myself and my stuff and what I perceive sometimes wrongly to be my, my needs. And it aligns me with God's purposes and God's glory. And it re-ups my joy and my peace. Because I'm seeing the king for in part who he is. And so here's third. Because the focus of the Bible is on Jesus, focus your prayers on Jesus. Now the Bible is made up of many, many different stories, like Nehemiah. But ultimately, the Bible is one story, and that is the story of God's redemptive purposes for his people and his plan to restore the world all through Jesus Christ. As Jesus himself says a couple of times in the Gospels, everything in the Bible points to me. So when we pray, we want to look for Jesus. When we pray, we want to focus on Jesus. So for example, in the book of Nehemiah, 
Jesus is the better Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a picture of Jesus because Jesus came not to build up walls but to destroy the walls of sin and injustice and hate and animosity and pride and an indifference that separate us from the living God. And he did that by going to the cross and dying in our place for our sins so that the moment we believe we might find forgiveness, we might find acceptance, and we might find the power, the electricity of the Holy Spirit so we can live gospel-centered lives full of joy and peace. So friends, don't merely go to the Bible to figure out how to deal with your circumstances. Go to the Bible to learn about Jesus, who he is, what he has done, what his plans for the world are. You see, when you take your eyes off yourself and you look to Jesus and you see a bleeding Savior hanging on the cross, it melts your heart. And you will want to talk to Jesus about his plans, not your preferences. So as I conclude, if you've never prayed, I want to invite you to start praying today. And I would encourage you to go to Matthew 6. And just pray the Lord's Prayer over and over. And then start to pray other things. If you pray occasionally, let me encourage you to take a step and be intentional. To adore and to admit and to ask for yourself and for others. And finally, if you're a person that's consistent in prayer, let me invite you to go, grow radically and to start using scriptures to form your prayers. That has been one of the best things that has ever happened to me. And I invite you to join me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us the Bible, you have given us these stories to point us to the story, the hero, and we ask God that you would fill us and bless us. For Jesus' sake, because of who he is, because of his honor and his glory, I ask that you would work in our lives. Teach us to pray. Teach us to pray day in and day out. Uh, break our hearts about the needs around us and what is going on. And we ask God that you would do something incredible. And I thank you for your Son, our Savior. Amen.